Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, which is precious. And we ask now that it would please be precious to us by your spirit. Uh, Grant that this would uh, strengthen us, encourage us, and change us as well uh, in the way that we view you and in the way that we live our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Well, I've had the blessing twice, in fact, of being able to visit Lord Howe Island. Both times I have climbed its highest mountain, Mount Gower, uh, which if you've been to the island is a remarkable mountain because it rises almost 900 metres just straight out of the water. So it's, it's quite a, a special place. It's a slightly dangerous walk and you're only allowed to climb it with a guide. Both times my guide was Jack Schick who has climbed the mountain well over a 1,000 times. In fact, it might be 2,000. And the last time I knew he'd never lost anyone. Uh, There is one of the more dangerous sections uh, where I was slightly worried about nine-year-old Caleb. And I was barking orders at Caleb to make sure he wouldn't fall off the mountain. And Jack told him, don't listen to your father. Just watch where you're going. You'll be fine. Now, at the scariest point on the climb, where if you slipped, uh, you could fall to your death, though, as I said, no one has so far with Jack, Uh, Jack, he stands behind you with a sheer drop behind him. Right throughout, of course, right throughout the walk, uh, you listen to Jack and you do what he says and you follow him. That's what happens with a guide, isn't it? Now, all of that is easy enough to understand when it comes to a human guide. But when we speak about God as our guide, it might at first be difficult to understand what is meant. Because since God is not physically present with us, how does he guide us from heaven? If you've ever wondered that, have you considered what a miracle it is that a human could have written the 23rd Psalm? Everyone can agree that the 23rd Psalm is a beautiful poem. But the miraculous part is that this is a human being's report of their experience. His name was David. He's a real life human being just like you and me. And he could speak of his own experience as having the Lord, the unseen creator, as his shepherd. This was a man that believed that God provided for him, I will not be in want, and that God gave him a place. He leads me beside quiet waters. Such was David's trust in the God who had provided for him in these ways that he obeyed God's guidance. See how it says in verse 3 of the psalm that God would guide him in paths of righteousness. I think our translation today says guide me in right pathways, but you'll know from the old, the old words, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So that verse there shows you that the shepherd God has purposes of his own. He's not just a projection of David's own ideas. There are paths of righteousness, not just pleasantness, and God leads David on those paths for his name's sake. Now, sometimes the pathway on which God would lead David and leads us will lead into the valley of the shadow of death. 
But even then, David is confident that the shepherd God is with him and that the ultimate outcome of the journey will be life in the the shepherd's house, the God's house, forever. Don't you think it's amazing that 3,000 years ago, this man, David, who, as I said, is just like you and me, could write so naturally about having God as his shepherd? That's an amazing thing. I mean, where did he get these ideas? How could he have known this? Not from the religious outlook of the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the other ancient Near Eastern peoples. Their gods were much too self-absorbed to be interested in shepherding one of us. Now, he must have got it from the law of Moses, uh, which recorded in our Exodus reading how God had guided Israel through the wilderness using the pillar of cloud and fire and provided for them in the wilderness with the the manna, the, the bread from heaven. So David understood that Yahweh God, the God of Israel, is a God who guides, and as a prophet himself, he knew that God was actually guiding him personally. Now, the idea that God might be interested enough in me to want to shepherd me personally, that's not something to take for granted. That's an amazing belief that is preserved for us here in the psalm. Now, it was roughly a thousand years later that a man named Jesus of Nazareth was walking the earth. And uh, John chapter 6 picks up Jesus' life when he's back in the north of Israel. Last week in our passage, he was in Jerusalem in the south, but now he's back in the north around the Sea of Galilee. And because of the healings that Jesus had been doing, Uh, as it says in verse 2, there was a great crowd of people who were following him. Verse 3 says he he went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. And really, he's trying to get away from the crowd so that he can have some quiet time to teach his disciples. But that didn't work. The crowd (laughs) coming towards him. I don't think it was Jesus' usual practice to feed the crowds that came to him. Teach them, certainly, but he didn't usually feed them. On this day, though, he had decided that he would feed them. And so he tested Philip. He said, hey, how do you reckon we could feed this lot? And Philip's response in verse 7 shows that this was an enormous crowd. Catering for a huge crowd off the cuff in the middle of nowhere... Well, that's, that's just not even difficult. That's impossible, isn't it? This was a very large crowd. The Apostle Andrew gets a mention here. Uh, he's the one who found a boy carrying five small barley loaves and a couple of fish. Now, I've read devotional books about how average Andrew distinguished himself this day by being so enterprising. Uh, I'm not really sure about that. Uh, I think Andrew was one of the most distinguished disciples already. Uh, more likely, John records this because it's simply what happened. Andrew happened to be the one who found the boy that day that had some food with him. And it's not clear that Andrew was showing any particular faith. I mean, he actually said, look, what, what use is this? But Jesus had decided that the boy's lunch would be the, the, the materials for his sign that he was going to do that day. And so verse 10, uh, have a look at verse 10 there. 
uh, of John chapter 6. Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. Can you hear the echo of the 23rd Psalm? He makes me lie down in green pastures. It isn't only John who picked up the hint. Mark's gospel also records Jesus saying, have the people sit down on the green grass. Now this shows us two things. Firstly, the disciples remembered that this was a grassy place, which don't forget is not to be taken for granted in an area as dry as Israel. Secondly, the disciples picked up the echo of the 23rd Psalm in Jesus' actions. And they wanted us to notice that echo as well. That's why they record the reference to the grass. So, with the people sitting down on the green grass, Jesus, as the psalm says, spread a table before them. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. The proof that the people had as much as they wanted is in the next verse. When they had all had enough to eat, the disciples went round and gathered up the leftovers, which filled 12 baskets. I have three observations here on this, at this point. Firstly, this is a stunning miracle. Now, don't forget that John has written his gospel and recorded these miracles so that we will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. That's from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where John gives us the purpose of his gospel. Now, this miracle alone, even without any of the others, is itself enough to show that Jesus is the Son of God. Second, we should just notice along the way that Jesus gave thanks to his father for the food and that he didn't want any wastage. Now, if even the one who makes food out of thin air feels it's necessary to thank his father in heaven for the food, then that's clearly an example to us. So the easy take-home from today's passage is something that we can apply at lunch and dinner today and, and every meal after that. Just pause, thank God for the food before you eat. If even Jesus did that, well, so should we. And Jesus tried not to waste any food. I think that is a no-brainer, easy for us to follow. But thirdly, uh, there's there's another echo of Psalm 23 here, that you prepare a table before me, I will not be in want. You see that the people had as much as they wanted to eat. They were satisfied, as is proven by the 12 baskets of leftovers. So Jesus here is demonstrating that he is capable of satisfying us, of meeting all of our needs, so that with him we will not be in want. This entire miracle is Jesus demonstrating to the people that he is the shepherd that he, he is the Lord, he is Yahweh, he is the very one who rained down the manna on Israel in the wilderness a thousand years previously. And it is, this is Jesus appealing to the people 
let me be your shepherd. In other words, let me lead you in paths of righteousness for my name's sake. And, and, and shouldn't that have been automatic? I mean, if, if we humans were not as difficult and obtuse as we are, imagine what should have happened that day. The 5,000 men plus the women and the children, well, they would have all simply bowed their knees to Jesus, kept silence for half an hour, and then begun, begun to say to him, our Lord and our God, thank you for coming down to us in this veil of tears and being with us and coming to be our shepherd. And then they would have all given half their possessions to the poor. And they would have forgiven all of their grudges. Given up on envy. Given up on lust. And begun to live lives of purity and peace with each other under Jesus' guidance. Isn't that something like what should have happened that day after Jesus fed the 5,000 people? if they had understood that Jesus was appealing to them to let him be their shepherd. But look what happened instead. Verse 14 tells us that they, some were realising this person is the prophet, the one foretold in the Old Testament, and that was true, that was correct, and you were meant to listen to the prophet. But verse 15 shows us that instead of listening They were planning to come and make him a king by force. That's why Jesus had to withdraw to be by himself. Isn't this sad? Like the shepherd is here making his appeal, let me shepherd you. But the people don't want a shepherd. They want a puppet king. A shepherd leads He leads you in paths of righteousness. The paths might be difficult paths. They might even veer into the valley of the shadow of death. But even then, you still trust the shepherd that he can provide for you and bring you through it to his father's house forever. With a puppet king, though, you never relinquish control of your life. And I guess that's the difference between a Christian and a false Christian. A Christian has Jesus as their shepherd, whereas a false Christian tries to make Jesus into their puppet king. They never relinquish control of their life, but instead they just fashion Jesus according to their own wants and desires. They won't allow him to shepherd them. Now, I want to urge you today to know and to feel that Jesus is appealing to you to let him shepherd you. Will you let him shepherd you? Uh, In in saying this, I'm I'm not only speaking to people who would not call themselves Christians yet. I, I, I think that This is something that every Christian needs to hear because the fact is, if if we're honest with ourselves, we're incredibly resistant, aren't we? Incredibly resistant to God leading us. Incredibly resistant to, to just 
listening to his word and taking it on board and changing our life. That's, that's true of even Christians. It takes the spirit to overcome that resistance. So this appeal that I'm making is as much for the long-time Christian as it is for the person who would not yet call themselves a Christian. The appeal is, will you let Jesus shepherd you? Will you let Jesus say, oh, no, no, not, not that way. Not the way of pride and competitiveness, and indulgence and worldliness. Let me lead you in paths of righteousness, of peace, love, simplicity of life, prayerfulness. Will you follow, this is a challenge for me as well, will I follow the way he leads? Will I trust in his promise to provide and satisfy me and be confident that he'll get me to the destination? Just the way people follow Jack Schick on Lord Howe Island and comply with his instructions. Jesus' methods of shepherding us today have got everything to do with the Bible, prayer and the church. If you want him to shepherd you, then you'll put those things in the centre of your life. The Bible is the way, his way of speaking to us. The prayer is the way of seeking his guidance on our part. The church, well, the church is the way of, of having a, a, a herd around us that will hopefully help us to go in the same direction. But those practical steps, they all flow from the realisation that Jesus is the shepherd who showed beyond doubt that day in the wilderness that he can satisfy us, he can refresh our soul, he can ensure that we will not want if we'll let him shepherd us. So I urge all of us here today, let Jesus shepherd you, even though it might involve travelling through the valley of the shadow of death, because his righteous paths lead to the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for sending us a shepherd in your son, the the most perfect shepherd we could have ever hoped for. Father, we are sorry that we can be so resistant to your shepherding. And we ask that by your spirit you might break down this resistance and please allow your son, the perfect shepherd, to shepherd us for your name's sake. Amen. Amen.